Dear Heavenly Father, we are so thankful that we can gather together this evening online and to have this time of Bible study in your word and to continue our study in soteriology and to look at the role of God the Holy Spirit uh, with regard to our salvation. And uh, we pray this evening as we take this time to look into your word that, this, that we will be sensitive to the illuminating ministry of the Holy Spirit who helps us to understand the biblical text. Father, we pray that we will be challenged by these things, that we might grow thereby. And we promise this evening, Father, to give you all the glory and the honor. Father, we thank you. We pray that we will be edified by this lesson. We ask this now in Jesus' name. Amen. And I'm going to switch over and go to live stream here on Facebook. Uh, so I will get that started. And I will also uh, switch over here to full screen so that we can see the study notes that I'll be using to guide us with. I see we had a few other people join this evening. That's good. All right, so we are continuing our study in soteriology, and we are looking at the role of God, the Holy Spirit, up to this point, we have talked about uh, the three members of the Godhead all playing a role in our salvation. We looked at God the Father uh, from eternity past, that He planned our salvation, that He commissioned the Son and sent the Son into the world. We looked at the role of God the Son. We looked at His deity, His incarnation. We looked at the doctrine of the hypostatic union. We looked at the suffering servant. We, look at the, we looked at the sinlessness of Christ, the humility of Christ. We look at the doctrine of atonement. We focused on a few prepositions, uh, the prepositions of substitution, namely the Greek preposition huper and the other stronger Greek preposition anti. We also looked at the role of God the Son um, we looked at soteriological aspects uh, of uh, the role of God the Son as it related to future eschatological events, namely the rapture of the church and the second coming of Christ. And now we have moved into the section that relates to the role of God the Holy Spirit in soteriology. Now, last week when we met, I went through and walked us through a number of passages to demonstrate that the Holy Spirit, though He is omnipresent, remember that He is equally and fully God as all the members of the Godhead, uh, that they are equal in essence, um, that they share the same attributes, and though God is God the Holy Spirit is omnipresent and omnipotent, uh, nonetheless there was a time, uh, and namely in Acts chapter 2, when God the Holy Spirit came into the world and began a special ministry on the day of Pentecost. And that's largely what we're going to be looking at, is we're going to be looking at soteriology primarily as it relates to the dispensation of the church age. And I'm going to back up in the notes here and just kind of read through uh, the previous paragraph that I had uh, put forth in the notes, and then also read a quote by Dr. Chafer. And that'll give us some context, and then we'll move on in the rest of the lesson at least as far as we can get anyway. Now in the dispensation of the church age, which uh, starts in Acts chapter 2, 
God the Holy Spirit plays a key role in the salvation of the lost. And though we are not given all the particulars and there is some mystery as to the details of how He works, it is still clear from the New Testament that He has a special ministry related to the salvation of the lost. And apart from His work, let's be clear, apart from the work of God the Holy Spirit, none can be saved. Uh, Evangelism starts with God. And uh, we have to understand that. And when we are witnessing to the lost, and tonight we'll look at a little bit of what's going on in the hearts of unbelievers and what God the Holy Spirit, what role He is playing, particularly with regard to the lost. But I want to be very clear that apart from His work, literally none can be saved. Now, one of the things that we'll look at in our study as well is that remember that God the Father sent... God the Son, that He was sent into the world. And this speaks of an authority structure even within the members of the Godhead, that they are co-equal, co-infinite, co-eternal. And yet the Father is the one very clearly in the Bible, it's very clearly stated a number of times that the Father sent the Son. That's very clear. What we're going to see as it relates to God the Holy Spirit, is both God the Father and God the Son sent the Holy Spirit. Both the Father and the Son sent the Holy Spirit. Now, one of the passages I have up here is in John 14, 26, which says, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name... He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. But notice that it says here, whom the Father will send. Now, I only bring this out because later on we're going to see where Jesus himself says, I will send you another comforter, that Jesus is the one who sends the Holy Spirit. And so there uh, there is an authority structure within the members of the Godhead. This does not diminish the members of the Godhead in any way. It just tells us that there is order within the structure of the Godhead. Now, going on in the notes here, again, apart from His work, the work of God the Holy Spirit, none can be saved. Now, the zealous evangelist who seeks to win the souls of the lost may, from a heart of compassion, employ every passage of Scripture related to salvation along with every compelling line of of good reason, and yet, in the end, fail to bring one person to Christ. And we spent a little time talking about that, that we can be very clear in our presentation of biblical truth, and we can present the Word of God very clearly, but we must always realize that at the heart of every problem is the problem of the heart. And when the human heart is negative to God, when it is set in negative mode, when it is recalcitrant and hardened and unwilling And we're going to look at some passages related to that, because even Jesus himself in John 6 makes it very clear. He says, uh, you know, that he offers his hearers, uh, the Pharisees, eternal life, but he says, but you were unwilling. And of course, that speaks to the issue of human volition, uh, that each person must be willing, must be positive in their response to the work of God in their heart. I found this interesting quote by Chafer. He says, Every soul winner becomes aware, sooner or later, of the fact that the vast company of unsaved people do not realize the seriousness of their lost estate, 
nor do they become alarmed even when the most direct warning and appeal is given to them. Chafer goes on, he says, they may be normally intelligent and keen to comprehend any opportunity for personal advancement in material or intellectual things. Yet there is over them a spell of indifference and neglect toward the things that would secure for them any right relation to God. All the provisions of grace with the present and future blessedness of the redeemed are, listed to, are, are listened to by these people without a reasonable response. They are perhaps sympathetic, warm-hearted and kind. They are full of tenderness toward all human suffering and need. But their sinfulness before God and their imperative need of a Savior are strangely neglected. They lie down to sleep without fear and awaken to a life that is free from thought or obligation toward God. The faithful minister soon learns to his sorrow that his most careful presentation of truth and earnest appeal produces no effect upon them. And the question naturally arises, how then can these people be reached with the gospel? And that's an interesting quote. And by the way, that's taken from Dr. Lewis Berry Chafer's book called True Evangelism. And I recommend that book very highly. If you can get that book, it's a, it's a short book. It's not much of a read, but in typical Chafer fashion, uh, his little book, True Evangelism, is very powerfully uh, presented with the Word of God. And so I recommend uh, that little book. If you can get a hold of that, I think you'll enjoy that very much. Now, uh, what Chafer is talking about here is he's addressing the issue of negative volition. He's addressing the issue of negative volition, that people who are negative to God will suppress the truth in unrighteousness. That's what the human heart does. But in addition to the blinding effects of sin, going on in the notes here, in addition to the blinding effects of sin resident in every human heart is the veiling work of Satan, you see, so it's not, it's a, it's, it's, it's a double wall of penetration that the evangelist or anybody who would share the gospel uh, must get through. And so not only is it an issue of negative volition, but it's also an issue of uh, satanic activity that is going on in the minds and hearts of these people. Now notice here it says, uh, and here I'm going to quote Paul from 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 3 and 4. He says, even if our gospel is veiled, now let me pause for just a moment there, uh, because there is a point where our gospel is veiled, and it, may, and, and it really should not be through any, uh, any failure on our part to present the gospel very clearly. And that is one of the things that I've tried to do throughout this series of presentations, is to point us to 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 and 4 where Paul gives us the content of the gospel, namely that Christ died for our sins and that he was buried and that he was resurrected on the third day and was seen by many. And when one accepts the truth of that, uh, of that claim set forth in the word of God and then turns to Christ and Christ alone for salvation, at that moment they have eternal life. And, uh, and that is a fact. And so it's one of those simple things where when we present the gospel, we need to be very, very clear in our presentation. Keep it simple. Uh, don't bring in an is issue of human works because human works do not save. That's another issue that I have 
bang the drum on over and over and over again. Um, so we need to be very clear in our gospel presentation. But even if our gospel is veiled, and notice that Paul recognizes that, that there are times where our gospel is veiled. He says, even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. Now here he's talking about unbelievers. And he goes on here, he says, in whose case the God of this world, now he's talking about Satan there. And remember that Satan is temporarily the God of this world. Remember that three times in the Gospel of John, uh, Jesus referred to Satan as the ruler of this world. Ephesians 2.2 calls him the prince of the power of the air. 2 Corinthians 4.4 calls him the God of this world. There's a number of passages. 1 John 5.19 tells us that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And, uh, and so we, we recognize that Satan uh, is given a measure of freedom to operate. Now, he's on a leash. Uh, he's not free in an absolute sense, but he is nonetheless uh, at liberty to some degree to function as the God of this world. And so people follow him. And so it talks about here, in whose case the God of this world, that Satan, has blinded, has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light. Let me highlight that. So that they might not see the light, um, that, so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Now, we have two actors going on here. We have both Satan, uh, who is seeking to blind the minds of these unbelievers, but we also have the activity of the unbelieving. And there we see volition on display. There we see a volition on display. Now, the blinding work of Satan in the minds of the lost, coupled with negative volition. So here we have both. We have uh, the blinding work of Satan in the minds of the lost. So there is some satanic work going on there, coupled with negative volition, that is the unbelieving heart. This creates a double wall of resistance uh, that cannot be penetrated by human effort. And attempts to breach these walls or to break them down by human effort alone. Now that's one of the things I'm driving at here, is we must understand the work of God the Holy Spirit in these things. So again, attempts to breach these walls or to break them down by human effort alone uh, has resulted in great frustration. The lost can only be saved when the Spirit performs His work in their hearts and they respond positively and freely to the gospel of grace. Again, very clear here uh, that the lost can only be saved when the Spirit performs His work in their hearts, and He is. He's convicting uh, the world of unbelief. Now, we're about to get into what exactly that is here shortly. But the Spirit performs His work in, the heart, in their hearts, and then they respond positively and freely to the gospel of grace. Quoting Dr. Lewis Berry Chafer here again, and this from his Systematic Theology, Volume 3, page 210, he says, It is as definitely contended that apart from this divine influence, no unregenerate person will ever turn to God. From this, it will be seen that next to the accurate and faithful presentation of the saving grace, no truth is more determining respecting all forms of evangelism than this, end quote. 
that is the work of the of God the Holy Spirit as the divine influencer. So the Spirit must do His work in the hearts of the unsaved, and the lost must respond, must respond to His work before salvation can occur. You see, God uh, is not a bully. He doesn't force people to be saved. And so each person must exercise their volition. They must turn to Christ freely and exercise their volition. Then and only then will the evangelist be effective in winning souls, and this when he presents the gospel of grace clearly to the willing heart. And listen, I don't have to argue with people. I don't have to browbeat people. Now, I'm glad to answer questions, and and I do get a lot of questions thrown at me. I have over the years. And over time, you learn to function as an apologist. You learn to give an answer to people who have legitimate questions, because there are some people that throw out questions not really because they're searching for truth, but because they just want to try to trip you up. And, uh, and so you have to be careful uh, to identify genuine questions, honest, good questions, from people who just like to argue. Uh, 2 Timothy 2, 24-26 says, The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome. Again, very clear. The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all able to teach, patient when wronged, and with gentleness, gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition. If perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will, because they are captive. And, uh, and so we present the truth, not in a argumentative way. We never approach people with a fist-in-your-face attitude. There's no place for that in Christianity. Uh, we do not argue with people. The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome. But when the heart is willing of the other person, we will find that it really is not much of a struggle. We just simply present the facts of the Scripture. And we trust, according to uh, what God says in Isaiah, where He says, "...when my word goes forth, it accomplishes what I sent it to do." And the Word of God, by the way, remember, is alive and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the dividing asunder of the soul and the spirit and of the joints and the marrow, and it is a critic of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And so I just simply put the Word of God out there, and I know that when it lands upon that heart, uh, one of two things are going to happen. Either the heart is going to be positive and it's going to be open and receptive to that uh, truth that is set forth from the Word of God. Or the heart is going to be negative, and it's going to seek to suppress the truth in unrighteousness, which is what Romans 1, uh, 18 and following makes very clear. But, uh, but you know, when I just simply uh, teach the Word of God, or when I communicate it, I just simply put it out there, because I know that it is alive and powerful, and it will do exactly what God intends for it to do when it's put out there. Now, getting back to the notes here, prior to the present work of the Spirit in the world today, uh, He was working in the life of Jesus to to sustain His humanity until He completed the Father's mission. And so we have to realize that God the Holy Spirit was involved in the life of Christ uh, to help Him in His humanity. Now, obviously, remember that when God the Son, uh, 2,000 years ago, roughly, came into this world... Uh, He came by means of the virgin conception and virgin birth, parthenogenesis. 
And at the time of the virgin conception, he was minus a human father. Remember that Jesus did not have a biological father. That God the Holy Spirit worked supernaturally in the womb of the Virgin Mary so as to create uh, the life that is Christ, the biological life in the womb of the Virgin Mary. And, when, and, and since he did not have a biological father, uh, then Adam's sin, uh, his original sin, was not imputed to the humanity of Christ. And so he was conceived perfectly as Adam was created perfectly. But Jesus Christ did not have Adam's sin originally imputed to him. Uh, nor did he have a sin nature. So he was born into this world, perfect humanity, true humanity, minus Adam's original sin and minus a sin nature. Then he went his entire life and he committed no sin. 2 Corinthians 5.21, Hebrews 4.15, 1 Peter 1, uh, 2.22, 1 John 3.5, all make it very clear that he knew no sin and he committed no sin and that in him there is no sin. Then he went to the cross and he died a death he did not deserve in order that we might have a life that we could never earn. But God, the Son, in, in hypostatic union, and remember that the hypostatic union means that he is undiminished deity combined together forever with perfect humanity. He is the theanthropic person. He is the God-man. Uh, but in his humanity, uh, Jesus faced many temptations. Hebrews 4.15 tells us that he was tempted in all ways like we are, yet without sin. Now, those temptations were external in nature because, remember, he did not have a sin nature, so he was not tempted internally like we are. But nonetheless, in his humanity, God the Holy Spirit came upon him, especially at the time of his ministry because he was going to face special temptations. Uh, but God the Holy Spirit sustained him in his humanity. And there's a number of passages that we see on this. For example, in Matthew 3.16, which says, And after being baptized, this would be water baptized by John the Baptist, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened, and he saw the Spirit of God, that's the Holy Spirit, descending as a dove and lighting on him. Shortly after this event, we have uh, Matthew uh, 4.1, which says, Then Jesus was led, led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tested by the devil. So notice that he's being led up by the Spirit. Uh, Matthew 12.28, Jesus here speaking to the religious leaders in Jerusalem. He says, But if I cast out demons, notice, by the Spirit of God. He's performing these supernatural events by the Spirit of God. Luke 4.14, it says, And Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. And then again in Luke uh, 4.18, he says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind to set, those who, to set free those who are oppressed. But notice the involvement of the Spirit in the life of Christ during his time on the earth in hypostatic union. Now, naturally, his work with God the Son, we're talking about the Holy Spirit here, naturally his work with God the Son to complete our salvation preceded his work of applying that salvation to all who turn to Christ in simple faith, believing the gospel, and trusting in Christ to save. So, 
here we see uh, the members of the Godhead. We see God the Father sending the Son, the Son coming into the world, taking upon Himself humanity. Uh, and this by means supernaturally of God the Holy Spirit, who was involved in the humanity of Christ from the conception, from birth, to preserve Him all the way throughout, even to the time of the cross. So God the Holy Spirit is a key player here. And as you look at these verses related to this, you see how, how this is borne out in the life of Christ. And then, of course, uh, after the cross, after Jesus died, was buried and resurrected, and then was seen among numerous people, which we covered before when we talked about the resurrection of Christ, and then his ascension into heaven and his session right now in heaven that's going on. Um, but the Holy Spirit was involved all the way through that. But after the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, then God the Holy Spirit is now applying the benefits of the cross to those who believe. We'll talk about that here shortly. Now, the coming of God the Son into the world marked a shift in human history. We might even call it a disruption into Satan's world system. And remember in John 1.1, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And in John 1.14, it says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we saw His glory. Glory is of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. John 1.18, no one has seen God at any time. That is, in His essential nature as Spirit. Because remember, God is Spirit. John 4.24 very clearly tells us this. But He says, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God, the monogenes theos. And, uh, and we might render that as the uniquely born God-man because that's what he is. He's the uniquely born one, but he is the only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father. He has explained him. So the coming of God the Son into the world marked a shift in human history, and God the Holy Spirit was involved in his human conception. Now, uh, let me pull up my notes here. I'm going to adjust my notes here on the page just a little bit so that this uh, doesn't scroll over on me. Um, but we have here in Luke 1, we have the account, the historical record. Uh, it says, Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth. Now, I find this interesting as well because here we see the role of angels involved. And remember, Hebrews 1.14 talks about angels being ministering spirits uh, who are sent out uh, with regard to those who will inherit salvation. So even angels have a role in our salvation. Remember, angels were present uh, throughout the life of Christ. They were here involved in His conception. Angels were at the resurrection. Remember, they were at the tomb. There were several angels there um, when uh, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary showed up. So you have angelic involvement involved in the issue of soteriology as well. So there's a lot of moving parts to our salvation. You see, our salvation is such a marvelous and wonderful thing. <laughs> And there's so many players that, that are involved in, uh, in delivering us, in saving us from this world and from the lake of fire and uh, securing us a place in heaven. There's so much going on. And that's part of what we're doing here is we're unpacking a lot of this. But we have here the angel uh, Gabriel who was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin 
engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the descendants of David. Because remember that Jesus is a biological descendant. Now, he didn't come through Joseph. He came through the line of Mary. And if you study the two genealogies of Matthew and Luke, you realize that through Joseph, Jesus has the legal right to the line. Through Mary, he has the biological right to the line. And these are all very clearly spelled out in the Gospels. And those genealogies are valuable. There is so much theology in those genealogies. I remember years ago teaching through the Gospel of Matthew. And uh, we spent some time going through those genealogies. There's so much richness there. Uh, But anyway, uh, he is nonetheless, Jesus is the rightful heir to the throne of David. And the angel Gabriel comes in and he said to her, Greetings, favored one, the Lord is with you. Uh, Now, this caught her off guard. Mary was a little surprised. She wasn't expecting this event. Uh, She might have been sitting in the house, I don't know, maybe crocheting or something, maybe kneading some bread. We don't know. But she's coming in, and in comes Gabriel, and he greets her, and he says, Greetings, favored one, the Lord is with you. Well, that's, you know, a little unusual. And it says in verse 29, But she was very perplexed at this statement and kept pondering what kind of salutation this was. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. For you have found favor with God, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. And he will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. Uh, Very important to understand. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. So that speaks of the second coming of Christ in which he will put down all rebellion, Revelation 19, you can read about that. And in Revelation 20, Jesus establishes his throne in Jerusalem in which he will be ruling over the whole world from Jerusalem uh, on the throne of David. And so that's where he'll be reigning. And, uh, and that speaks of his kingdom. And by the way, once the kingdom starts, it never stops. It, what we have is really... Uh, the, uh, the kickoff party. We might call it that. We might call it the kickoff party for the eternal kingdom because Christ is going to be ruling for a thousand years. But Paul tells us quite clearly in 1 Corinthians 15 that he hands the kingdom over to the Father. And so once the kingdom starts, it never stops. It goes right on into eternity. And so we just get the first thousand years of it. But uh, of his kingdom, he will, says, we'll have no end. And Mary said to the angel... How can this be since I am a virgin? And the angel said to her, uh, and the angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you, and for that reason the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. So here we have the Holy Spirit involved in the human conception Uh, of Jesus Christ with regard to his humanity. Now, God the Son is going to add humanity to himself because that is what is going on in the hypostatic union. It is God the Son adding humanity to himself. But the Spirit is playing a role in this because he says here that the Holy Spirit will come upon you. And again, the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, uh, that is for the reason for the work of God the Holy Spirit, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. And so not only uh, was the Spirit involved in his human conception, but also sustained him during his time of ministry. Now, I've already hit on that a little bit, Luke 4.14, which says that Jesus returned to Galilee in the power 
of the Spirit. Mark 12, 28, again, he says, if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, and so on. So you see that the Spirit was sustaining and working through him uh, during his time of ministry, and even upheld him during his time of death on the cross. Even upheld him during his time of death on the cross. Now remember that uh, Jesus, uh, in uh, the, remember the passage we looked at in Hebrews, where uh, Jesus, at the time that he was about to come and add humanity to himself, uh, he cites a passage out of the Psalms where he says, Sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. A body you have prepared for me. Now, in the context, he's talking about sacrifices. He says, uh, with regard to animal sacrifices, you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. And then he says, Behold, uh, I have come to do thy will, O God. And so he came into the world and took upon himself humanity and lived the righteous life that we cannot. Now, 1 Peter also makes it very clear that in his own body, he bore our sins. Now, we're going to look at some of the issues surrounding uh, this work of Christ upon the cross. I've been working on these notes for months and wrestling with some of these issues, but nonetheless, what we must understand is that the Holy Spirit here is not sustaining uh, God the Son. God doesn't need sustaining. God is omnipotent. He is all-powerful, and God doesn't die. And, and, and so what we have here is we have uh, God the Holy Spirit sustaining the humanity of Christ. We must keep that in mind. Now, there's some theological tension that goes on here, but that's all right. Uh, the, the Word of God is truth. It, set forth, it sets forth truth, and, uh, and we have to uh, uh, understand these things, even though it may create some tension in our mind. We'll talk about that a little more. But it says here in Hebrews 9.14, it says, How much more, then, will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God. So notice Christ was able to offer himself without blemish on the cross. Uh, but this was, again, through the eternal spirit that Christ was able to do this. Now, John Wolverd, he has a good uh, quote here, and here I'm citing him from his uh, book, The Holy Spirit... Actually, this is an article that was taken from Bibliotheca Sacra, uh, uh, volume 98, 1941, page 52. Uh, and the article is titled, The Holy Spirit in Relation to the Person and Work of Christ. But John Wolverd notes, he says, quote, There is implication that the whole process of the incarnation leading to the cross was related to the work of the Holy Spirit. Let me pause for just a moment there because there's a lot in there. Notice again here, he says the implication, there is implication that the whole process of the incarnation, that is from when God the Son added humanity to himself. So the whole process of the incarnation from when he was conceived in the womb of the Virgin Mary, leading to the cross, everything in between was related to the work of the Holy Spirit. Wolverd goes on, he says, as Christ was sustained in life, so also in death the Holy Spirit sustained Christ. Um, in the difficult hours of Gethsemane and all the decisive moments leading up to the cross, the Holy Spirit faithfully ministered to Christ. Faithfully ministered to Christ, end quote. Now, God the Holy Spirit was helping Christ fulfill the Father's mission 
of going to the cross and dying in the place of sinners. Of Jesus' time on the cross, again, the, he- the writer of Hebrews states, How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? William Lane, and here I'm citing him from the Word Biblical Commentary, uh, William Lane states, quote, The fact that his suffering was made through the eternal Spirit implies that he had been divinely empowered and sustained in his office, end quote. Uh, so God the Holy Spirit helped to sustain the humanity of Jesus in hypostatic union, which enabled him to complete the Father's mission of going to the cross and dying as a substitute for lost humanity. So again, we're talking about what we're looking at here is the role of God the Holy Spirit in soteriology, and we're looking at it briefly with regard to his role uh, with regard to Jesus Christ in hypostatic union, that during the time of his humanity, God the Holy Spirit worked through him to sustain him throughout his life so that when he goes to the cross, he is offered up as a sinless substitute, as a sinless substitute, because this is the end game here is ultimately going to be our salvation. And, and again, what we're, under, what we're understanding here, what we're unpacking is all of the work, all of the work by God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, the involvement of angels, all of the activity that goes in to our being saved. It is a, it is a huge undertaking. It is an absolutely huge undertaking. And hopefully some of this is uh, being unpacked for you uh, in your thinking. Now, according to Wolvert, here I'm going to cite from Wolvert again, and uh, this is going to be taken from his book, The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit. And, and by the way, I do recommend the writings of Dr. John Wolvert, and he was known mostly for his books on prophecy. Uh, and he was, he was really the, uh, the top leading scholar uh, on things pertaining to prophecy during his uh, time of ministry. Uh, but he's written a number of books. So, but if you can get your hands on his books, his books are very good. But I have here a quote by Wolvert from his book, The Holy Spirit. And he says, quote, The work of the Holy Spirit in relation to the sufferings of Christ on the cross consisted then in sustaining the human nature in its love of God, in submission to the will of God and obedience to His commands, and in encouraging and in strengthening Christ in the path of duty which led to the cross. In it all, the ministry was to the human nature and through it to the person of Christ. The inquiring mind must ever confess that this truth is infinite and beyond our complete comprehension, end quote. But he's very clear that the work of the Holy Spirit pertained to the sustaining of his human nature. Uh, again, he says here, in it all the ministry was to the human nature. And I would agree. I would agree with that. So now, having looked at the role of God the Holy Spirit briefly with regard to the sustaining ministry of God the Son in hypostatic union with regard to His humanity, let's now move to the Spirit's convicting ministry to the world. Uh, The Spirit's convicting ministry to the world. Because whenever I am sharing the gospel with an unbeliever, I know, according to the Word of God, that the Holy Spirit is already at work in the heart of that person. Now, in the New Testament, God the Spirit, God the Holy Spirit, took on a new ministry after Jesus returned 
to heaven. God the Holy Spirit took on a new ministry after Jesus returned to heaven. Now, part of his ministry, part of the Holy Spirit's ministry is to believers. And I've taught on this. I've taught on the spiritual life. In fact, I wrote a book called The Christian Life, A Study of Biblical Spirituality. And I've updated some of that material, and I taught through uh, a series of lessons on advancing to spiritual maturity. And part of that is found in the book I published uh, last year, uh, titled Tares Among the Wheat, Living Righteously in a Fallen World. Uh, So part of the ministry of the Holy Spirit is to believers. It is to believers. And part of His ministry is to unbelievers. You see, God is working in the hearts of everyone, both the lost and the saved. Now, concerning the Spirit's ministry to believers, Jesus said in John 16, 7, He says, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, notice what He says here, I will send Him to you. Now, earlier we talked about the verse where Jesus said that God the Father will send the, the Holy Spirit. But here, and I, and I reference that on purpose because of this passage here, because Jesus himself said, he said, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come. So the, so the coming of the Holy Spirit with regard to his special ministry, because remember God is omnipresent. He's equally and fully everywhere all the time. So it's not like he's more in one place and less than the next. He is equally and fully everywhere all the time. David talks about this in Psalm 139, where he says, Where can I go from thy spirit? Answer, nowhere. He says, Where can I flee from your presence? Answer, nowhere. If I go to the remotest parts of the sea, behold, thou art there. He gets poetic. He says, If I take the wings of the dawn, behold, thou art there. And so he, you cannot escape the presence of God. He is omnipresent. He's everywhere. So when it talks about the Spirit coming, His being sent into the world, that has to do with the special ministry that He took up in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost. Uh, but notice here, He says, But if I go, and Jesus did go. Remember, He ascended to the Father where He is at right now. He says, I will send Him to you. Now, the Helper is the Holy Spirit uh, whom Jesus will send because the uh, verse there where he says, I will send to you, uh, the word send there uh, translates the future active indicative of the Greek verb pempo, uh, the future active indicative. So so future tense, future tense there uh, speaks of a future event. It is not a present uh, reality. It is a future reality. Now, for us, it's past because we look back at Acts chapter 2 as a past event. But here it was future. Jesus said, I will send him to you. The active voice means the subject produces the action of the verb. And this means that, that Jesus is the sending agent. And so is God the Father. God the Father and God the Son both sent the Spirit into the world. The, uh, and the indicative mood is declarative for a statement of fact. And so this is a fact. So again here, the the Helper is the Holy Spirit whom Jesus will send uh, uh, to believers. Now the Spirit's work in Christians would be multifaceted and would relate to really our sanctification and godly influence in a fallen world. Because, listen, after the moment of salvation, 
We are at that moment, once we trusted in Christ as our Savior, once we believed upon Him, believing He died for us, was buried and raised again on the third day and was seen by many, and we accept the testimony of the truth of Scripture regarding the historical events surrounding the person and the work of Christ, and then we turn to Christ and we believe in Christ because man needs only Christ to be saved. And Peter makes this very clear in Acts 4.12, where he says, There is no other name given under heaven whereby we must be saved. And of course, John 14.6, where Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father but by me. And so once we turn to Christ and we believe upon him, we are at that moment uh, forgiven all of our sins. We are given eternal life, the gift of righteousness, and many, many other blessings. And so that is a moment in time. That is our justification. We are saved from the penalty of sin. But then we begin the Christian life. Then we begin this thing called the walk, uh, how we live our life, how we think, how we, uh, how we speak, how we live. And you see, at the moment of faith in Christ, we are transferred from Satan's domain of darkness into the kingdom of the beloved son. Colossians 1.13 is very clear on this. And we are no longer in Adam, but now we are said to be in Christ, in Christo, that prepositional phrase that Paul loves to use uh, throughout his writings, that we are in Christ. And so at that moment, we become children of the living God. We become children of the living God, and we become part of the royal family of God. Now, the problem is we have to renovate our thinking because we spend a lot of our time... um, uh, thinking like peasants, and we have to be have that renovation of thought that goes on, whereby we can then begin to think God's thoughts after Him. Uh, we can begin to operate by divine viewpoint. So we begin this process of sanctification, in which we are uh, growing closer and closer in our walk with the Lord, and we are functioning as lights in a dark world. We are functioning as lights in a dark world. So again, the Spirit's work in Christians is really multifaceted and relates to our sanctification and godly influence in a fallen world. You see, we're not neutral. We want to share the truth of God's Word. We want to share the gospel of Christ with others, that they might come to faith in Christ, to believe in Him and have eternal life. We don't want anybody to go to hell. We don't. And so we share the gospel, and uh, and we speak truth. We always speak the truth in love. And so we want to be a light in a dark world. We're not neutral. Now, we don't ram, cram, and jam information down people's throat because, remember, the Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome. We must function as a diplomat, which means that we must function uh, with an air of diplomacy, with respect. We must be cordial to people, polite when we are engaging them. And if they don't want to hear it, that's fine. Uh, you know, we may not approve of their decision. Remember even in Matthew 10 when Jesus sent the apostles out. He said uh, he sent them out and he said, freely you have received, freely give. And so they went out with an attitude of grace. Uh, but when they went out and shared the gospel, if people wanted to hear it, fine. If they didn't want to hear it, shake the dust off your feet and move on. Uh, now you can express your protest, you can shake the dust off your feet, but you don't try to force uh, the gospel on people or biblical teaching. If they don't want to hear it, they don't want to hear it. And, um, and, but nonetheless, we are not neutral. So we go forth and we want to be a light in a dark world. Now, after Pentecost in Acts 2, God the Holy Spirit would work in and through His church to other Christians to help with their sanctification. 
uh, and to unbelievers to share the gospel of grace that they might be saved. You see, and I love to share the gospel with people. And I love to talk about Christ and who He is. And I love to talk about His going to the cross. I love to share these things with with unbelievers and even with some believers to help them understand what gospel presentation looks like uh, because some are quite confused on the matter. So I like to talk with other believers about these sorts of things. And so again, God the Holy Spirit, after Pentecost, uh, works in and through the church to other Christians. And it's just like me. I mean, I have a gift that God gave to me at the moment of my salvation when my grandmother led me to faith in Christ at the age of eight, when I came to understand the gospel and believed in Christ as my Savior. And I was given a spiritual gift. I was given the gift of teaching. I didn't ask for it, didn't earn it, don't deserve it. And later on in my life, after the Lord had spanked me on a few occasions and I had uh, suffered divine discipline because of my arrogance, and uh, He humbled me, and I thank God that He did, but I finally came around and I, uh, and I got in line and I submitted myself to the Lord. And that meant uh, that I had to go to school, I had to get an education, I had to learn to develop the gift that He had given me. And I had a responsibility for it. And I had to go to school and I had to get an undergraduate degree, a master's degree, and a doctorate. I had to spend years learning Hebrew and Greek and theology and philosophy and history and culture and, and all these different things. And I was blessed to learn from some exceptionally gifted Bible teachers over the world, uh, uh, over, over time. And, uh, and so I was tremendously blessed by different Bible teachers who helped me to understand how to exercise my gift. But nonetheless, uh, we function within the body of Christ for the edification of others, for the building up of others. And we should understand this. But this is part of what God the Holy Spirit is doing. He's working through the church. He's working through believers to have an impact in the world. And, uh, and I love this quote by Warren Wearsby. And this is taken from his Bible Exposition Commentary, Volume 1. He said, The Holy Spirit does not minister in a vacuum. Just as God the Son had to have a body in order to do His work on earth, so the Spirit of God needs a body to accomplish His ministries. And that body is the church. Our bodies are His tools and temples, and He wants to use us to glorify Christ and to witness to a lost world, end quote. And, uh, and that's, you know, that sort of understanding is very, very encouraging because Christians know that God the Holy Spirit is working through them to help lead the lost to Christ. And, uh, and that's nice to know because every believer needs to know that when they are born again, when they have new life and they are in a right relationship with God because they have turned to Christ as Savior and they are no longer enemies of God, uh, they have now been reconciled to God through the cross. Once they come to understand that and then they get in line with God and they begin to learn His Word and to live His Word. And that's always the order because you cannot live what you do not know. But once they begin to learn and live His Word, then over time they begin to have an impact in this world through their life. They function as a light in a dark world. And this creates within them a personal sense of destiny that is tied not only to the infinite personal creator God, but to eternity itself. Because the impact how you live your life in time 
impacts eternity because other people, unbelievers, will come to faith in Christ. And so people will be saved from the lake of fire because they believed the gospel message that you preached in clarity. That is a tremendous impact that other people can be saved, that God would work through us, that He would use these pots of clay, these jars of clay, that God would use these crooked sticks to draw straight lines, that God would work through these vessels, as broken as we are, nonetheless, we are a temple of God the Holy Spirit. And God works through us to have an impact in the lives of other people. And that is important to understand because that is part of your identity. And so it's very important for us to, be, uh, to understand this and to be encouraged by this. Because again, we know that God the Holy Spirit is working through us to help lead the lost to Christ. And not only that, but God is working through us to help other believers know God better, to know His Word better, that they might walk with Him in unbroken fellowship, that they might know what it means to be filled with the Spirit, to walk in the Spirit, and to grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And they know what it means to live out the Christian life, which is a fabulous, fabulous life to be lived. There's really no better life to be lived uh, this side of heaven. And so to live out the Christian life is really the best life that can be lived. But that's only because God the Holy Spirit uh, is enriching us to know the Father, to know the Son, and to be able to live out this wonderful thing called the Christian life. Uh, so again, this is very encouraging because Christians know that God the Holy Spirit is working through us to help lead the lost to Christ. But there is also a special work of the Holy Spirit that He is doing in the hearts of unbelievers to help them uh, turn to Christ as Savior. So we're not alone in this. And remember Hebrews 1, which says that, that there are ministering angels that go forth uh, that are involved in those who will inherit salvation. So the angels are at work uh, in the background. God the Holy Spirit is at work in the background. Uh, and so before we ever show up, there's a lot of, there's a lot of work that's gone on uh, long before we ever showed up to give the gospel to anybody. Now concerning this special work, Jesus said in John 16, 8, He says, and He, that's talking about God the Holy Spirit, when He comes, that's Acts chapter 2, that's the day of Pentecost, and He, when He comes, will convict the world, the world there is a reference to the world of unbelievers, will convict the world concerning three things, of sin and righteousness and judgment. He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Now, Jesus' statement about the Holy Spirit uh, at the time he said it was in the future tense. He will convict, which implies that the special ministry was not active at the time that Jesus uttered this statement. This special convicting ministry would be inaugurated on the day of Pentecost. And the word convict translates the Greek word alenko, alenko which means, and here I'm quoting from uh, Badag, which is the Bauer Danker Art and Gingrich, a Greek-English lexicon of the New Testament and other early Christian literature. You've got to love these long titles for some of these books. Uh, but a lexicon is just a dictionary is what it is. And according to Badag, Alenko means, quote, to bring a person to the point of recognizing wrongdoing, convict or convince someone of something, end quote. And I actually like and prefer the word convince uh, 
because that's really what it is. Uh, it's something that is going on in the mind of the unbeliever to convince them of something. Now, Jesus said that the Spirit's work would fall into three areas. One, concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Two, concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you no longer see me. And three, concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world has been judged. Now, one of the things, and I'll give a little bit of a heads up here, because uh, we're not going to get into it this evening. We don't have enough time because our hour is almost up. But when it says concerning sin, concerning sin in uh, John 16, 9, sin there translates the Greek noun hamartia. Hamartia. If you ever study systematic theology, one of the categories you will study is called hamartiology. Hamartiology. And it comes from this Greek word, hamartia, which is the word that is commonly translated as sin. And so the noun here is singular, uh, singular, because really the convicting work of the Holy Spirit pertains to one sin, that is uh, the sin of unbelief, because they do not believe in me. And, uh, and so we will spend some time unpacking this in more detail next week when we jump into this in a little more detail. Of course, you have the notes, so you can, you can read ahead. I've already sent these out to everybody, so you can read ahead. So you know where I'm going, for those of you that follow the notes, or, or read ahead. And of course, I'll bring in stuff, I'll introduce stuff, we'll chase down words, uh, verses, we'll look at some of the Greek uh, uh, words that appear there, uh, and that's stuff that I will bring in supplementary to the notes here. All right, so let me go ahead and stop the lesson here. So we've made enough headway. And next week, this will be a good opportunity for us next week uh, to pick up on these three categories concerning sin and concerning righteousness and concerning judgment. So we will look at those in greater detail next week when we pick up. So let me go ahead and stop it there. Now, do we have any questions over tonight's lesson? Do we have any questions over tonight's lesson? Hey, Paul. Good to see you, buddy. Um, <laughs> I think you should have a wider audience than you currently have right now. <laughs> okay. Just an observation. Sure. Well, we all start off small, and, you know, I'm, I'm happy where well, I'm you've at. You've been I've, doing this for a while, haven't you? Uh, I mean, uh, since 2006. Yeah. I mean, really, you should have... Well, um, God has me where... I, I, yeah. I don't know, I mean, uh, why or what, but you're that good. I mean, <laughs> your, your teaching ability is that good. Oh, well, thank you, so, Paul. I appreciate that. Yeah. I, I, it's very encouraging. And I, and, I, and I love the teaching, obviously, and I love getting into the Word of God and expounding it and working through it uh, carefully, uh, either verse by verse or doctrinally. Um, but, you know... I mean, I have a few people that come in person to my Saturday night Bible study. Uh, and, uh, you know, I have a larger audience online where people, you know, follow on Facebook or YouTube or from my blog or my podcast. 
but it's, it's kind of hit or miss here and there. But you know what? People that are positive, the Lord will send my way. Um, and I would rather have a small audience that it displays positive volition and wants to know the Lord. Um, it would be nice to have more, but, you know, that's at his discretion. I just kind of leave that up to him. But I appreciate your, com your comment and compliment. That's greatly appreciated. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, I appreciate that. Thank you. <laughs> Stephanie has a question. Stephanie has a question. Give it to us, Stephanie. Oh, okay. I just, I, I wanted to say, I, I absolutely agree with that gentleman as far as the gifts that the Lord has given mm. you. Absolutely. As a teacher. Mm. But, but I did want to say, you know, um, I guess the way that I see it is that, you know, at any given Sunday, you could have a number, number of people that we can see physically online or a few people in person. But ultimately, you know, the people that you reach through the podcast, podcast the videos, your books, all that, I mean, we don't even know what that number is. And I think that that number actually really isn't that important. What is important is that, you know, you teaching the word mm -hmm. and that, you know, God does what he does. And like you said, in the hearts of believers and the Holy Spirit convicting unbelievers all over the world in different cities. And, you know, I think that that kind of applies to, you know, God is working in ways that we can't even fathom mm -hmm. in time and space and people's lives all over. Just like with you, you know, we may not see the, the people who listen or see the people who read your books or see the people who watch your videos, but it, it can be a... Uh, a large number, mm -hmm. you know, um, and so absolutely, I agree with that gentleman. The Lord has blessed you with so many mm. gifts, but at the same time, I think that sometimes, um, like a friend of mine, she's you know one of my best friends. You know, I don't necessarily agree, and that's fine. It's not up to me to agree, mm. but she's Pentecostal, mm -hmm. and so like for instance, one of her first first questions is always, "Well, how many people go to this church, or how many people go to that church, or are there youth there, or is it just old people?" And because you know what God says, and I'm like, "No, what does God say?" <laughs> yeah, you know and and so it also makes me think about you know noah as a preacher of righteousness mm -hmm. and, you know as far as who, how many converts all the years that he taught and taught and taught and preached the word and preached the word and right. i think you know absolutely you're you're so blessed and so gifted and i i thank you for being obedient and answering the call to teach and share the yeah. word with others but i i think that um you know, especially in this day and age, the the way that technology and everything, we have no idea how many numbers of people you have planted seeds in their hearts and their minds. Yeah, I would agree with that. There is the invisible aspect of it. And I must confess on a human level, there have been times where I've gotten a little frustrated over the years because you sometimes feel like you work and work and work and work and work and pour yourself into it and invest time and money and you beat, you beat your brains in with school and you, and you, you, you go to such great lengths to be good uh, as best as you can be for the work of the Lord and yet it seems like really there aren't a whole lot of people that turn out uh, nor a whole lot of people who really support you know what I do I mean what my ministry has you know since I started you know teaching God's Word I feel like effectively for the past few decades has been as a volunteer because, you know, I work a full-time job and what I do, I do in my spare time. I study, I teach, I write, uh, but it's a volunteer ministry and that's fine. If that's what I have, I have to be faithful to the cause because, you know, I want to stand before the Lord and, and hear 
well done, good and faithful servant. You know, I don't want to be that one who uh, stands before the Lord having buried a gift. So the issue is always faithfulness. Uh, but it does get to be a little frustrating and a little discouraging at times on a human level. Uh, but again, you know, like your comment is, you don't know who you're touching. You don't know who's hearing the gospel. You don't know the seeds that are being planted and the impact that that will have uh, in the lives of other people. You know, the person who led D.L. Moody to Christ uh, had no idea that that one person was going to go on to become a world-renowned evangelist who would share the gospel with millions of people. And all it takes sometimes is touching the life of one person. And, um, and I agree with you, your example of Noah as a preacher of righteousness. Of course, I've cited, um, uh, you know, Jeremiah 25.3, where Jeremiah had been faithful to teach the word of the Lord to Israel for 23 years, but they would not listen. And you look at John 6, for example, when Jesus was at really the height of his popularity, when the thousands were, were you, know, you know, coming to him. And they even wanted to take him by force and make him king. And, and when Jesus in John chapter 6 is a long chapter to read through, but when you start the chapter, he's at the height of his popularity. But as you read through the chapter, as his teaching progresses, the multitudes turn away from him. And then it, there's a certain point in John chapter 6 where it says uh, that most of Jesus' disciples turned away from him. And at that moment, uh, Jesus then turns to the 12 and he says, are you going to leave too? It, it's almost like there's, you know, there's the door, fellas, if you, if you want to go. And of course, Peter gives that famous answer, you know, where are we going to go, Lord? You have the words of life. But Jesus, when he starts out at that point in John 6, he's, he's at the height of his human popularity, we might say. But by the time he gets through preaching, it's narrowed down to just a handful of people. But that handful of people rock the world, and the world has never been the same. And many people have come to faith in Christ because of the faithfulness of those apostles. And so that, to me, is a good example of, uh, of you know, how the Lord will uh, you know, bless those and work through those who are faithful to him. So... If I may, I, I would like to encourage you. There's two thoughts that I have. Like when you feel that way, because that, you know, when thank you for being transparent, that's mm -hmm. very normal and very human and very real, you know, to feel that way about, you know, smaller numbers and, mm -hmm. and whatnot. Um, but if I can encourage you with two things is one, you know, um, the word talks about in later days, like people are going to seek out those whose teachings tickle their ears. Right. You know, and, and we know that the, the broad versus the narrow. So whenever you see smaller numbers or no numbers or whatever, you can think, well, I'm, I'm apparently not tickling ears. Right. <laughs> so I may not be super popular because I'm not tickling ears. Right. So hopefully that encourages you. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and, you know, and, and then whenever um, Jesus during his ministry and his, you know, disciples were with him and they were in the temple and, and, you know, he told them, look, there were, you know, people who were coming that were giving, abundantly but it was out of their abundance mm -hmm. and there was a woman put in you know two coins and it's all that she had mm -hmm. all that she had and so it wasn't necessarily the quantity that was the focus but the quality and the intent of the heart you know right and so when you feel that way hopefully those can come to mind and encourage you well and you thank appreciate it. thank you dear and thank you for that word of encouragement and it, and it is a word of encouragement and it's and we're told to do that for each other aren't we we're told to encourage one another and uh and you certainly have an encouraging way about you and that's a blessing and it's i thank you very I'll much second, 
<laughs> and to Nancy has a question or a yeah. Nancy, let's have it, dear. Well, I I want to be another encourager for you <laughs> because the people who aren't hearing you are um, they're not sharing in this fabulous blessing that you are mm. in your teaching ministry and and I was taught by um, Dr. Danish who was he was under the teaching ministry of Lewis Berry Schaefer. Right. And then uh, he was a classmate of Colonel Thiem. Uh-huh. And then now, to sit under your under your teaching, I just feel like I'm doubly blessed. <laughs> well, thank you, Nancy. And um, Dr. Danish, he would say the same thing. He would be so discouraged because he would say, you know, we met in a gym, which you've seen. Mm-hmm. And he would say, it makes him sad that every seat was not filled. Mm-hmm. You know, because those people should, you know, they should be there hearing. But um, he did have the tape ministry, mm-hmm. which went, you know, worldwide. And I'm sure yours does too. We know it does. Right. Because look who you have joining us. But I mean, you're an unbelievably gifted teacher. Mm-hmm. And, um, I know that the gates are narrow mm-hmm. that lead to salvation, and I don't even know what percentage of of us will be, um, you know, in God's family. Mm. But I don't know. I don't get the impression that there are a whole a lot of our humanity that will be there. Right. And so I'm just so thankful mm. for you. Well, thank you. Know, don't question your gift because. I mean, it's wonderful in all the books and podcasts yeah. and everything you do. I mean, mm. you have to be mm. totally gifted by God to even for your energy to do all you do. Mm. And I'm just so thankful for you. Mm. I don't deserve it. Well, thank you, Nancy. I appreciate that. Um, and yes, I can feel Dr. Danish's... Uh, uh, concern <laughs> because it does get to be a little discouraging at times. But you know what? I think of the passage uh, in the Old Testament where Moses uh, got tired during a time of battle from holding his hands up and others came alongside him and, and helped him, you know, and they helped to keep his hand raised that Israel might gain the victory. And, you know, it goes to show that there is a role that all of us play, whether one is in a lead position or whether one is working in the background, you know, much of who I am over the years, uh, you know, I am very thankful for my wife because of the work that she plays. And she's that invisible hero that works in the background that edits my notes and uh, engages me with wonderfully rich theological discussion and in the end uh, really helps me. And we were talking about it earlier because, you know, a lot of the work that she does that people are just not aware of. And it's a team effort, you know. It's one of those things, I think, where when we come together, it should be complimentary, you know, to help each other uh, in whatever way is needed so that God can be uh, glorified and that other people can be edified. So, but I I think... I appreciate Sherry also, yes. Oh, yeah. She's a guy. Because I know that she... (laughs) I know that she's a wonderful partner. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I, mean, I, I wish that I, I wish that I was there for some of your discussions. <laughs> <laughs> Just so I could gain the knowledge. Sure. No, they're they're good. 
All right. Do we have any other questions or comments about tonight's study? Any anything to take up before we close out? anything up front, but we are still live streaming on Facebook, just FYI. Okay, I will close that out here in just a second. All right, well, if we don't have any other questions or comments, uh, let's go ahead and have a word of prayer, and then I will uh, close out our live stream. Dear Heavenly Father, we are so thankful that we can call you Father, and we know that that is made possible because you sent your Son into the world, who came into this world and took upon himself humanity, who was supernaturally conceived in the womb of the Virgin Mary, who came into this world sinless and throughout his life sinned not at all. He lived an absolutely sinless life. He lived righteously. And then he went to the cross and he died a death he did not deserve. And he took our sins upon him and was judged in our place, the just for the unjust, so that we might be brought to you, that we might be reconciled to you, Father. And we are so thankful for all the players uh, involved in our salvation, the role that you played, Father, the role of the Son, the role of the Spirit, the angels who were involved. Father, we are just so overwhelmed uh, with all that went into our salvation. And we are just so thankful for all that you have done and that we can even call you Father is such a great privilege. And Father, we hope that our lives will in the end ultimately glorify you and bring all honor and praise to you and also be edifying to others as we function as lights in a dark world. Father, I pray that tonight as we go forth that we will be challenged by the things that we've studied, not only that we might grow, but that we might also be a blessing to others. Father, I thank you. I ask this now in Jesus' name. Amen.